Welcome to Ancient Egypt Alive's Secrets of Egypt Revealed podcast. An audio adventure featuring two Canadian Egyptologists, Laura Ranieri Roy and Francois Roy. Each episode, we will feature a historic site and bring it alive with little-known facts, interesting news, and recent discoveries. Episode 2, The Great Sphinx and Pyramid of Khafre. It is one of the oldest, largest, and most mysterious monuments ever created by man. This monolithic statue, no photo or sketch can prepare you for. It's sheer scale, the drama. It's a humbling experience to stand between the creature's paws, each the height of two tall men and longer than a semi-truck trailer. I'm talking just about the paws. And it is, of course, the Great Sphinx of Giza. And behind it, looming above it, is what appears to be the largest pyramid on the plateau with its cap of limestone casing. This pyramid behind the Sphinx, though great, is not the largest, though it appears so. It's actually the second largest. And together with the Sphinx, they comprise the great legacy of Khafre, known by the Greeks as Kephren, Khufu's son. So this week, we're going to look at Khafre's pyramid and the Sphinx. Who built this monstrosity? Was it Khafre himself? When was it done? What is the symbolism behind it? And of course, how did it lose its nose? We're going to be delving into some of the many confounding mysteries as we look at Khafre's pyramid and Sphinx. But first, Francois, let's talk about who Khafre was. Let's talk about the family and the point in time of the building of these great structures. So Khafre was not Khufu's first son, was he? No, um, his first son uh, was actually Kawab, who was predeceased. And um, in effect, the son that took over the throne right after is Jedefre. And it's really important, the change in the name, because we now add Ra and a new title to the king. Ra. So it's the son of Ra is now the, the new title or an additional title, becomes one of the five king's titles. And it's Jedefra. And that means really that the sun cult is on the rise now. Previous, it had been more of the Osiris cult going into the fourth dynasty now. Yeah, that's right. So we see a change in emphasis in terms of, I think, religious belief. Uh, but what doesn't change is that every new king chooses a new site to build their pyramid. So... As an example, Khufu's uh, father built, actually at two other sites, he built at Medum and he built at uh, Dashur. Two virgin sites. And uh, Khufu chose the plateau and his son actually built a bit north at a place we now call Abu Roash, about eight kilometers or five miles uh, north of Giza. And this particular pyramid is uh, is is very different than the others. Um, a little bit of controversy. It's about a quarter of the size, and when it was finished, and but right now when you look at it, it looks completely either dismantled or even incomplete. It's not on the tourist map either, is it? No, and, and not at all. And the site 
approximately half of the pyramid would have been an unused, I guess, natural rock promontory. So the French-Swiss team that looked at it assert that it was completed and likely dismantled in Roman times because the site was actually closer to the capital of, uh, of Memphis. So the only thing we have left are the 20 lower courses in granite. Getting back to Coffre, so, his younger brother of this Jedefra, how did it come about? Tell, tell us a couple of the, the key facts about, first of all, his pyramid. Khafre was was confident enough um, to try to build a pyramid um, at least the same size. But because of the plateau, he took advantage of the plateau's slope. So he actually starts the pyramid 33 feet higher. But the pyramid slopes at a certain angle, so they actually had to cut down one of the corners. So they cut down the northwest corner and they filled the opposite corner to level it so they can do the pyramid. So they actually start 33 feet higher, and then they finish 23 feet higher than Khufu's pyramid. But unfortunately, that means that the pyramid was actually, in terms of total volume, 10 feet shorter than Khufu's. They're almost identical, and they have just a slight change uh, in slope in terms of degrees. Can you imagine the pressure mm. if you've got a grandfather like Snefru who's built like four major pyramids and then you've got a father who does the biggest, most perfect monument ever made by man. It's like, oh, I got to find something to do. I'll build on a higher slope. And uh, But his pyramid isn't as perfect. It's a little steeper. It doesn't even have the complexity inside. It's it, got only the two chambers, right? Nothing up high... Absolutely yeah. correct. And maybe that helped a lot. Um, there's no upper chamber with those massive 50-ton uh, blocks of granite, right? There's no grand gallery with its uh, complex corbelled ceiling. ceiling yeah. So that's completely gone. The interior is extremely simplified. There's just a very short descending passage and then a long horizontal passage. The chamber was done at ground level so that the burial chamber was literally just just off the top of the foundation. Of course, it was roofed. Uh, that's new, but it's only 38 feet above the base. So this really cuts down on the construction time to build this pyramid. Now, what's really interesting about Khafre is some of the discovery history. And there's a wonderful story from uh, early archaeology of perhaps the most exciting early explorer, very, very interesting fellow, an Italian called uh, Belzoni. He was six foot seven in height. He uh, had an engineering background. He'd spent some time in England as a circus performer, came to Egypt uh, to sell a, a water device to the Pasha, but was recruited because of his size and strength for archaeology. He was the one who dragged the stone of Ramses back to the British Museum for Henry Salt. But he was the one who essentially was the first Westerner to enter Khafre's pyramid, even though the ancient um, builders had tried to make it robbery-proof. Belzoni, with his engineering knowledge, managed to get inside, get inside the burial chamber, and one of the first things you always see there is the great Belzoni was here. He spent some time inside there mapping it. Interestingly as well about the burial chamber is we have the sarcophagus, we don't have the body, we have um, a little... Um, an area for a canopic box 
uh, carved into the stone. This is the earliest that we have inside a burial chamber. Yes, it was carved into the floor. So there's a slight depression uh, for those uh, canopic jars. But one of the greatest legacies, we talk about the Sphinx and the pyramid itself, second biggest in the world, but it's the structure, it's the pyramid complex, and his mortuary temple would have been incredible with 52 statues of himself. This is where the priests would practice the rituals for the cult for uh, certainly generations and even centuries to follow, right snug up against the pyramid. This mortuary temple existed. Then there's this brilliant causeway, quite well preserved still, and leading to the Valley Temple, the absolute best preserved in ancient Egypt, right, Francois? Yeah, that's right. And it's actually, well, actually, it's, it's the only one that's really been thoroughly excavated. Uh, the, the Valley Temple for Khufu actually sits underneath the town of Giza. Can't get there. I've tried to walk down that path for Khufu. It just, the, the road ended and it yeah, fell off this cliff. Just ends. That's like, right. The causeway yeah. just ends. And so... That, I think, is the most important thing about Khafre's complex. It's it's complete. We have the full mortuary temple on the side uh, with the basalt floor and megalithic blocks up to 200 tons. And they're all sheathed in, in granite. This is the valley temple. This is actually the upper mortuary temple. And there's also a small a satellite pyramid. The causeway uh, is spectacular in terms of its length. It's uh, over 1,600 feet long, and there's a drop. There's a drop from the plateau down to the Sphinx. Uh, it drops 164 feet. So how did oh. they drag? They dragged those 200-ton megalithic blocks up that causeway. And of course, when the causeway, when it was finished, of course, the causeway had sidewalls built into it and, and, and a, a roof, roof yep. of which most of it's gone. But we have a little, little section where the walls are still there. And what's interesting is that tourists climb that short little wall so they can get a better look at the Sphinx. And that's, that's the viewpoint we have today to look at the Sphinx. And we're going to have some great pictures on our website, ancientegyptalive.com of uh, these early uh, pyramid episodes. To, you can look at the Pyramid of Khafre and Khufu and uh, relating to future episodes, ancientegyptalive.com. So we've talked a little bit about the causeway and the valley temple, just to define these elements of the pyramid complex. The causeway itself is this processional roadway. As we mentioned, it was roofed, it had walls, often with reliefs, and this is for the great funeral of the king. This is where the, the body would process up. It also was used practically to bring the stones up to the structure of the pyramid. The valley temple itself was used, we think, for last funerary rites. It's where the body arrived off the harbor, the, the body was brought up, the final rites, and it, the floors were white, pure stone. And this is different than the mortuary temple, which was more about the preservation of the king's cult after death. So a few definitions there, all these different elements. But the Valley Temple of Khafre is amazing with, again, 200-ton megalithic limestone blocks. Uh, blocks. Um, but what's really amazing about the, the Valley Temple, a few things. Number one... It was in excavating the Valley Temple 
that one of the most famous statues of the Old Kingdom was found by Auguste Mariette um, it, in the late 19th century. It was Khafre enthroned, that incredible um, statue in that dark diorite stone of the king, beautifully carved, with Horus embracing his head around the back. Um, unbelievable, but what's even incre more incredible to think, there was probably a dozen or more, 20, 50 of these statues, both in the Mortuary Temple and in the Valley Temple originally. But we have this one masterpiece, which today is in the Egyptian Museum in Tahrir, potentially moving to the gem as it opens. This Valley Temple, made of these massive blocks, actually is offset. It doesn't lead directly east down from the pyramid. It's actually angled. It's angled by about 14 and a half degrees. And it was placed there beside the Sphinx. The Sphinx actually leads directly, would have led directly down from the mortuary temple straight down. So the causeway is actually at an angle. And I would say controversies, but always questions as, as to when the Sphinx was built right? What came first? It's obvious that something was there. Uh, it had to be in order to build the Valley Temple uh, literally beside it, angle it. So let's just clarify this, this sphinx, this amazing creature in stone with the body of the lion and the head of a man was not like a statue brought with rocks brought and all carved. It was carved out of a naturally occurring knoll of limestone that had been there. This is why there's such date controversy. It had been there for tens of thousands of years, right there on the Makatum Foundation. Now, we think it belongs to Khafre for a few reasons. One is it lies pretty much at the end of his causeway, again, angled away from his valley temple. Yes, that's right. And and we have that statuary of Khafre to give us a real good clue. And it really looks like definitely the head uh, well, was carved or bottled after Khafre. So that gives us one clue that it likely was Khafre. Connected to his pyramid. It looks like his face. But was it carved previously? I mean, there's also always the argument, did it have a different king's face earlier on did it have the face of khufu it's not far from khufu's or, or even jedefri that came up as well and others are saying well maybe the actual head was a head of a lion right so what's important to know about the sphinx though is that it was carved out of a piece of limestone something that we called a yardang a naturally occurring eroded piece, wind eroded piece, but the whole statue of the Sphinx itself really is actually more than one piece. The rear part of the Sphinx, there's actually a separation of two meters, and also the form of the Sphinx, the eroded form of that stone, doesn't exactly mimic that of a lion, of a recumbent lion. So it was actually formed. We actually have sculpted blocks and the hindquarters of the lion so we can see the masonry fill in between the carved outer blocks and the natural core that is the sphinx so, so it's not one piece that was perfectly carved they had to add some other they stone had to at add the back, elements right? to okay. make it look and the paws in particular we know that for sure
let's join our expert in Egypt, Hossam Ragab, Egyptologist. Um, you have studied and guided the Sphinx for almost 20 years now. What do you love most about this structure? What is really amazing and what might surprise people about it? What surprised me firstly is who is the first person took the decision when they saw such a uh, knoll of uh, rock to carve it to make such a uh, statue uh, in perfect way. I was wondering all the time because till now we have a different theories uh, about the Sphinx. Every day a lot of people talk uh, about it, but it, it's for me uh, a great location and a great carving for such a huge rock and having uh, two different uh, creatures, a human and the lion in front of the, the three pyramids, especially, you know, the second one. So it's considered uh, one of the most important antiquities in Egypt. And the people from all over the world keep asking about the Sphinx. So uh, if you ask any tourists all over the world, what's more you know about Egypt? Sometimes they mention the Sphinx more than pyramids. sometimes. And when you visit the Sphinx today, has anything changed about the way you experience the site? In all times, we did suffer b because of the modern buildings, which is in the area, you know, around all these crazy buildings with the drainage uh, and uh, the water. But uh, we had uh, a good decision from the government by building this concrete to protect the whole area of the Sphinx from, from that water. Are you talking about like the KFC and all of the, the suburban restaurants across the street? Or are we talking the encroaching suburbs of Giza? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm talking about all the American uh, restaurants and uh, also the, the Egyptians who, who live around. So it, it was a good decision to protect the whole area by building a big wall around, first of all. Second... Uh, to make a, a good uh, project uh, by preventing water to get close to the Sphinx. And uh, I think also there is another plan for caring more about the Sphinx. As I see, they are protecting the body of the lion itself. Uh, I saw sometimes some uh, archaeologists, they do some uh, like consolidate the, the body itself from the erosion and all of that. Wonderful. Have you ever been underneath the Sphinx or in any of those special passageways? Yes, I have been there many times uh, and uh, walk around. Uh, I stood next to the Dream Stila and I have a dream too. So nobody knows what will happen in the future. What was your dream? Tutmosis IV did not reveal his dream till he became the pharaoh, you know. Oh, so you're waiting. <laughs> Hossam had a dream. He was hunting near the pyramids and uh, Sphinx. and Maybe did... director of antiquities. Yeah. <laughs> did the Sphinx speak to you? Has he, has he spoken to you a lot? I think there is a, a good bond between me and the Sphinx. Every time I go there, there is a kind of uh, good looking, you know. A, a knowing glance between you. Yes, yes, he knows that I have a dream and he is a dream maker. So 
Could happen any day. Excellent. Thank you so much, Hossam. Great having your commentary, and we'll talk to you again soon. Always great to talk to you, Laura. This was not the first Sphinx ever created in Egypt. Jedefre, the name we mentioned, Jedefra, who was the, the, the elder brother of Khafre, who built six miles north. There were sphinxes associated with himself and with his queen, with one of his queens. And earlier sphinx, not as big, but there were sphinxes before the great sphinx. That's one fact. What about the size of this great sphinx, though? This one here is the length, including the paws, is 240 feet long. This is quite long. We're 73 meters for those in metric. And the width is 62 feet or 19 meters. And the height is 20 meters or 66 feet high. So let's put things into proportion with this huge size of the Sphinx. The scale is 22 to 1 and the head is 30 to 1. How would you simply visualize that, Francois? Well, basically that means that the body is larger than the head in terms of scale. The head actually is not 122, it's smaller. It's 130th. If you look at the Sphinx from a distance, the head, it looks too small from the side. Okay. All right. The other thing you probably don't know about the Sphinx is it has its own temple connected with it. Not only is there the valley temple connected with the last funerary rites of the king, right beside it with those huge megalithic blocks where the statue of of Khafre enthroned was found, or one of them, there's a temple devoted to sun worship, which actually had a renaissance during the New Kingdom and all the New Kingdom kings, the Amenhotep II and Tutmosis IV, and even the Ramesides came back and worshipped there, worshipping the sun at dawn and dusk, the Temple of the Sphinx. You usually don't go into it during tours, but the ruins are there of its own sun temple. Um, one of the first temples, well, there's Heliopolis Temple, but one of the early temples to the sun in Egypt. Um, and the, the building of this temple was generally thought to be made from the stones that came from carving out of the Sphinx, as was some of the stones of the Valley Temple. That's right. So if you can visualize it, we have two temples bracketing the Sphinx. One, I guess, to the left or the south, which is the Valley Temple, and the one to the right or to the north, which is uh, the Sphinx Temple. So what is underneath the Sphinx? Is there a hall of records like Edgar Casey said there would be? I mean, so many people over the years have looked for the mysteries of the Sphinx. Absolutely. And, and what this led to is it led to a lot of explorers basically digging, digging holes. So you have uh, holes were dug on the back of the Sphinx. There was actually a hole dug in the head of the Sphinx. And a major one actually dug in the back uh, near the tail of the Sphinx. Um, and it was thought that this led to passages. But when we go down, it's obvious that it was done in the 19th century. Uh, the one in the back actually by, um, I believe, a vice. Colonel uh, Weiss, the gunpowder archaeologist, yeah, liked to uh, do his excavations with a bit of dynamite. <laughs> but um, certainly Lena and Hawass are absolutely of the opinion, nothing... Uh, predating the fourth dynasty, which is the age of, of Khafre, exists underneath there. And, and Liener should know he originally came in search of, of this, these spiritual connections, but is convinced um, this is man-made. 
Uh, any weathering that makes it look older is because it was this knoll of rock that was exposed to the elements. Um, yeah, fascinating stuff. But how did the Sphinx lose its nose? This is one of the other most contested questions. Well, there's uh, there's always the legend that it, you know Napoleon's troops used it as for artillery practice and things like that. These are one of the fanciful stories that came out of it. Um, we do see marks beside the nose, and was obviously was taken off with an iron rod or an iron spike. We know how it was taken yes. off with the iron spikes, that's but we right. don't know precisely when, when. But that's most right. uh, medieval Islamic records. Well, one Arabic historian in particular. Al Makrizi, uh, he was writing in the 15th century, and he attributes the loss to uh, a Sufi Muslim mystic who was actually appalled uh, because he found that the local peasants were making offerings to the Sphinx in the in the hopes of increasing their harvest, and I mean, probably asking for an increase mm. in the level of the flood. And um, it's attributed to someone, he's called Muhammad Saim al-Dar. And we even have a date. So in 1378, apparently, uh, he did this. <laughs> yeah, and again, how do you kill a pagan god? Well, the best way is to cut off his ability to breathe air. Because anything living, a living god, will die if it's a supply of oxygen. So taking off the nose, you can't breathe anymore. So that's the best way this uh, very uh, religious Sufi leader could get rid of this uh, pagan worship. Kill their god. It's, it seems like the most likely cause for, for that. Um, there doesn't seem to be any other historical records or proof. We know that later visitors, uh, when they come to the Sphinx, they leave drawings behind. Um, people like Pocock, etc. Oh and the God, nose is already gone. And, and right? there's some hysterical drawings, which uh, we should also have on our site, um, the early travelers must have sort of had this vision of the Sphinx in their head, went back to their uh, their lodgings or went back to their countries and thought, oh, I'm going to draw it out. Some of them have bouffant hair and breasts and all sorts of imaginative <laughs> uh, features to them. They don't look anything like the Sphinx. It's, you have to wait till Napoleon Savants yeah. to get a really good, accurate uh, yeah. Uh, picture of, uh, of what the Sphinx looked uh, like. Absolutely. And um, what's interesting about that, too, is when, when of course, Napoleon and Savas came, you know, the Sphinx uh, was buried basically up to its neck. But that's not the first time it was buried. Yes. The Dream Stella. This is one of the last stories we're going to be telling on this podcast. Wonderful story. So back in the New Kingdom, the Sphinx, as you mentioned, is covered with sand. Uh, a lot of its history was covered with sand. And one of the New Kingdom kings, before he was king, he was prince, Prince Tutmosis. But his father, Amenhotep II, he was not first in line to succeed him. So he went up to the site of his ancestors in the north because they were all ruling from Luxor, from Thebes, Waset in the south. He was on a hunting trip and he created this PR story. He said, the great god Horam Akhet, as they called him. They didn't call him the Sphinx. That was a Greek name that was assigned to it. Horam Akhet was buried in sand and I fell asleep after hunting near him. And he spoke to me in my dream and said, look at me, I am buried. Uncover me, restore me. If you do so, I will make you the next king of Egypt. 
And thus he did. He uncovered the Sphinx. And this would be considered a legitimacy story that he created for himself, erecting this dream Stella to talk about how essentially the Sphinx endorsed him for king because he did works to restore uh, the ancient monument and saved it from the sands. And that's Tutmosis IV around the 15th century. But, right. but there's some evidence, isn't there, Francois, that there's um, text on the Stella. Yes, that's right. There's, there's text on that Stella. That serves the legitimacy story, but also connects well, them with Khafre. Yes, and when it was first uncovered, um, and it was deciphered, the, there was a cartouche, obviously, indicating a, a king's name, and the cartouche uh, read Kaf, and part of that cartouche had been flaked off. And so it would make sense that it, the, the part that was flaked off was, was raw, Khafre. So the, that means that the New Kingdom kings living a thousand years after these Old Kingdom pyramid builders believed it was Khafre's. It was Khafre's. That's right. And of course, it's it's sitting directly due east in front of Khafre's pyramid. It's important to note, I don't think we mentioned, the, the Sphinx is actually facing east, which is the rising sun. So what is the symbolism of the, the Sphinx? The resurrection of Ra. The daily resurrection of Ra. The lion itself was not only a symbol of power and strength, and the head, the symbol of man's intelligence and intellect. So together they were that, but the lion was a symbol of the sun. So many things in Egypt were the symbol of the sun, from the color red and yellow, and Horus, the hawk dog god, and lots of things, Kephre, the beetle, sun in the morning, but the lion was a solar symbol. So we have in the Sphinx, it always has its solar connotations. Yes, that's right. And um, so we mentioned the story about the dream Stella, where the Sphinx had to be uncovered. Napoleon also had to uncover the Sphinx buried in sand. And the story about the Sphinx buried in sand doesn't end there. When Rome occupied Egypt, it was also covered in sand. And I guess during the reign of the Emperor Nero, the governor of Egypt at the time, Tiberius Claudius Balbillus, uh, what they did is there was an increased interest in the Sphinx and an increase in tourism, actually. And so the Sphinx was uncovered again. And to get a better view of the Sphinx and of that stele and that little niche, I guess, where that was, they built a monumental stairway uh, about 12 meters wide, 32 feet wide, and uh, several hundred feet long. And it's and this stairway actually has been there for 2,000 years, and it was only dismantled in 1931 and 1932 when a Frenchman, Emile Barrez, did a major, uh, I guess, renovation and restoration of the Sphinx. Some of that restoration, of course, today is a little questionable uh, in places using concrete. Uh, but um, anyway, so yeah, the Sphinx uh, keeps getting <laughs> getting covered in sand. And keeps getting restored. So to yeah. sum up, I mean, the Sphinx is one of the most restored monuments in history because of its supreme age and its interest over the times from the time of Tutmosis IV and even earlier through the Ramessides, the Romans, the Greeks, and through to today, constant restoration and renovation. It's not the first Sphinx. As I mentioned, there were earlier Sphinxes 
lions with human heads from the time of Jedefre, Khafre's older brother. Was it the face of Khafre? Most people think so. Um, and it's connected. It's all part of this incredible complex with Khafre's amazing pyramid, the second largest in the world, his valley temple, his mortuary temple, his causeway, all in all, an amazing wonder of the world. If the pyramid isn't as great as Khufu's, the entire complex is pretty bloody amazing. That's right. And it's, as I said, it's well worth seeing. And uh, I wish the entrance was still at the east end so we can see it all in all its glory. Maybe it's a good ending. When people exit it, you get your fabulous photos uh, with uh, the Sphinx and the pyramid behind it. Ancient Egypt Alive, Secrets of Egypt Revealed podcast was created and voiced by Laura Ranieri Roy and Francois Roy. It was recorded and edited by Dominic Roy. Our special guest is Hossam Ragab, Egyptologist live in Egypt. For more news on Ancient Egypt Alive and pictures, information, blogs, tours, events, come visit us at ancientegyptalive.com. Thanks for listening.